Well, I do keep your Bibles open there at Isaiah 53, or as John Calvin would tell you, uh, the chapter has been, to use his word, dismembered. The division has been put in the wrong place, and Isaiah 53 should really begin at chapter 52, verse 13, which may confuse you. But remember, the numbers have all been added for our convenience, except where they're not there for our convenience. And this is one of those moments. What we find as we come to this little section is, of course, that we are breaking in on uh, the second stanza of a poem. The original poem, uh, each stanza takes about three verses in our English translation. The first stanza was one in which we heard the voice of God himself speaking. He's introducing a figure who's already been being introduced to us piece by piece, bit by bit, as, uh, as the uh, uh, writer has been unfolding, as Isaiah the prophet has been unfolding the revelation that God gave to him. Uh, starting off in the beginning of the book with a picture of God acting to send a great kingly figure, we, we have the surprise in the end of the book by discovering that the kingly figure who's coming is going to appear as a servant. And we've now come to the fourth of those songs that celebrate the servant. And so God himself says, behold, look, here is my servant. And in that first stanza, it begins and ends by underlining the fact that the servant's identity, the identity of the servant, he shares that identity with the God of Israel himself. The language that's only used about God is used about him. He shall be high and lifted up and exalted. So the servant's identity, we're told, is beyond human. It is, he can only be defined and described in divine terms. And ultimately, however he may appear to you as a servant in this servant-like form, the destiny is that he will be high and lifted up and exalted. And then he ends that first stanza by demonstrating that he will have an impact not only on Israel, but he will have an impact on the world. He will cleanse or sprinkle many nations by his, by his sacrifice that he makes. He will provide cleansing, that is, spiritual cleansing, for people throughout all the nations of the world. This is a big picture, hope, and expectation that Isaiah draws here. And uh, when you get to the next stanza, beginning in verse 1 of what we call chapter 53, another voice speaks. And the message of that voice is, no one will believe this. No one will believe this. No one will believe that the servant will share the glory of God. No one will believe that the servant will have a worldwide impact that will affect many nations and will have the, the effect of bringing many people to God. No one will believe that. That's the message of the stanza that we're looking at today. 
And if you look at the opening verse, you'll find that there are two things that are particularly prominent in that text. There is a report and there is a revelation, and those two things belong together. Believing this report and receiving this revelation are two sides of the same thing. This is a gift from God, a gift from God, a revelation of God at work, as we'll see in a moment, that has been reported to people, it's been announced to people, it has been proclaimed to people. Luther, in his German translation, translates this expression, what he has heard from us, as what has been proclaimed to us or preached to us. John Calvin, in his commentary, which I have open before me here in the pulpit, if it will accept my thumbprint for a second. John Calvin, in his commentary here, says that this is the prophetic preaching or the apostolic preaching that is being referred to here. Who has believed what has been preached, what, is, what they've heard from us as we've announced, reported this good news? Now, the question we ask as we come, as we shift now uh, from that first stanza in the Hebrew to the second stanza in the Hebrew, is this, who is talking now? In the first stanza, we heard God talking generally to the prophet and to others in this vision. We have him making an aside in verse 14 of chapter 52, an aside to the servant as many as were astonished at you, he returns to finish the description of the servant, which has raised in our minds this question, why is he so unacceptable to people? Why will he be marred beyond human semblance? And then he returns to the effect of his work, which is that he will sprinkle many nations. Now in chapter 53, now verse 1, second stanza in the Hebrew, We're asking the question, who is speaking now? You can see there's a shift takes place. Look, follow this with me as as we describe here in this opening section, the enigma in verse 1, the enigma of unbelief. Why is it that this message is not believed? Why are people so far from believing? Why do so few people believe the message Who is speaking here in this second stanza? number of things to notice. It's in the past tense. That's an immediate hint that someone else is speaking because God has been speaking to us, or to Isaiah rather, in the present tense, looking forward to what this individual will do. Now we're looking back at what this individual servant has done. So whenever you see a past tense, when you expect a future tense, that's sometimes called the perfectum propheticum, that is the prophetic perfect, that is the prophet is speaking as if it has happened. That's very often the way that's been described. So there's the past tense, there are the pronouns that are used that indicate a shift of speaker. They are now plural, we and our. And the principle then emerges that wherever you see direct address by an uncertain speaker in the text, now that is one of the first hints that makes us ask the question, the prophet is obviously speaking, but in whose character is he speaking? Who is he representing when he says these words? In his book, uh, The Birth of the Trinity, Matthew Bates of Quincy University 
points us back to the story in the book of Acts. You remember of an Ethiopian eunuch. He's been up to Jerusalem. He is a, a believer, a monotheistic believer. He, he has gone to Jerusalem to go to the temple and to be received in the court of the Gentiles. And while there, he's bought himself a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And on his way back, he's reading this, when God supernaturally brings the evangelist Philip and uh, Philip finds himself standing right in front of this chariot that's coming towards him and, and the chariot stops and Philip goes and speaks to the man on the chariot and asks him what he's reading. He says, I'm reading this, the prophet Isaiah, and I have a question for you. Can you tell me who is the prophet speaking about or uh, concerning whom is the prophet speaking, himself or someone else? The prophet, the commentaries get all worked up about this. But as, uh, the, the, the fundamental question, I think, that, that, that is being asked is this. Is Isaiah speaking as himself? Is this the plural of majesty that the queen uses whenever she's talking to people? We are glad to see you. Or is he speaking on behalf of someone else? Athanasius, one of the great early fathers, wrote that the eunuch was concerned that, listen to this, getting the persona right, or getting the persona wrong rather, would mean getting the point wrong. In other words, if you don't work out who's doing the talking, then you miss the point of this verse regarding the time, the subject matter, and the identity of the speaker. So who is the we? in this opening verse. And we don't have far to go for help. We go to our New Testament and we go to the book of Romans, chapter 10, verses 14 to 18, and the apostle Paul tells us that these are the apostles that are speaking. The apostles who were the first ear witnesses, eye witnesses, and mouth witnesses to Jesus. And this makes sense. This makes sense when you notice the component parts of the text. Here is a human report of a divine revelation. The prophets, the apostles rather, are the New Testament equivalent of Old Testament prophets. They are the spokespersons. They speak this message that was revealed to them by the Holy Spirit. Justin Martyr, another of the early fathers, says this about this text. Isaiah while speaking as if from the person of the apostles, has the apostles saying that certain people will not believe their audible message, that is, their preached message. Paul quotes that in Romans 10 and goes on to underline that that's what he's talking about when he says concerning the apostles, their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the boundaries of the known world. That's Romans 10, 18, quoting Psalm 18, verse 5. So I propose that Paul's right, that the speakers are the apostles, that here Isaiah the prophet is speaking as from the apostles, the word that they will testify to as a result of their preaching the gospel of Jesus. And it is right that that should be the case. They were the ones who saw the servant at work. They were eyewitnesses to his miracles, to his sufferings. 
They, like the person, the people speaking in this first stanza, they themselves misunderstood him. Over and over again, they misunderstood him. They mistook what he was saying to them. Over and over again, they found themselves not only doing that, but once they started preaching about him, they recognized that his fellow Jews would not believe in him. Unbelief met them wherever they went, particularly when they took the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. And so they're saying as they reflect on their ministry, they're saying as they think about the whole issue of the unbelief of the Jews to the message that they are preaching as fellow Jews as they preach the Jewish Messiah to the Jews, which is what Paul's talking about to some degree in Romans chapter 10. They recognized that they are not accepting the report that they received. They'd received a revelation, you see, because they'd been with Jesus. They saw his glory. They heard his teaching. They witnessed his death and his resurrection. They witnessed his ascension into heaven. And they proclaimed that message. They faithfully proclaimed this message. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and was raised again according to the Scriptures. This is the good news that we proclaimed to you. That core gospel message, they proclaimed it from the very beginning. And those men who preached that message were the first to experience what every minister of the gospel, every Christian believer experiences today. That is, that wherever you share that message, wherever you proclaim that message, many, if not most people who hear it, will not receive it, will not believe it. Who has believed our audible message, they ask? Who has believed the preaching of the gospel? As men and women witnessed the resurrection, the apostles understood the significance of who Jesus was and is and what he accomplished. And they proclaimed it joyfully. It was good news. They wanted people to come away. Do you realize Jesus is alive? Because Jesus is alive, that means that his promises are real, that he will raise you from the dead. He will give you life, life immortal. Isn't that good news? This good news is right at the very heart and core of our Christian proclamation. It ought to bring joy to people's hearts. But they, they, rec- they discovered, they, they recognized from the earliest moment that this message was opposed. It was resisted. It was not believed by the people. Paul says this. You remember writing to the Corinthians. He says the preaching of Christ crucified was a stumbling block to the Jews. And it was foolishness to the Greeks. Wherever you go, the idea of a crucified Christ, all that's, all that's tied up with that very notion of why he had to die and why he had to endure the wrath of God for us, all of that is an affront to people. And they didn't believe it. And what was this message then that they had to believe? Well, it was that the arm of the Lord has been revealed. 
Actually, what, what the text is saying is this, that people don't believe the report until the arm of the Lord has been revealed to them by the Holy Spirit. That is, until there's been a work of God uh, opening people's minds and hearts, opening their eyes to see, their ears to hear, and their wills to respond to Christ. Until that happens, then they will not embrace this one. Now, I want you to look at that phrase, the arm of the Lord, for a moment. That expression points to two things. First of all, the arm of the Lord speaks about the Lord's personal presence in personal action. You cannot disconnect the arm of the Lord from the Lord. Uh, What was that family? Uh, The Munsters. Uh, You remember, if you ever watched that in television, there was the thing. The thing was a disembodied hat. That would just be there. The arm of the Lord is not like the thing. It is not a disembodied hand. You cannot have the Lord without the Lord's arm. You cannot have the Lord's arm without the Lord. Jews understood that. When they read in their Bibles that God says, my mighty arm will... They knew that God meant he would be present and he would act. And when the Messiah was said to be the arm of the Lord, they knew that meant the Lord was there personally present to act in power and to accomplish his will. Listen to this great announcement by the prophets. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. God had promised to do that for Israel. That she could never do for herself. He would restore her. And he would the nations to himself. And he would do that through his mighty arm. And that mighty arm would be the person called the servant. That was what they weren't prepared for. Whenever they thought of the mighty action of God in person, present, they always thought perhaps of the divine activity surrounding Moses. The opening up of the Red Sea. The walking of the people through the desert, being preserved and protected by God and provided for by him. Those mighty acts of God. And there's a sense in which when the Messiah came, he did those things. Messiah came, he made blind eyes see and deaf ears hear and dumb mouths speak and lame men walk and leprous men clean and dead men rise. He did all of those things. He demonstrated the mighty power of God when he spoke to the wind, stop and it stopped and to the sea be calm and it was immediately calmed and when he turned water into wine and he fed a multitude of people, he was demonstrating the power of God. And yet what these men are complaining about, what you and I complain about, is this, that in spite of seeing what Jesus could do, in spite of seeing what he demonstrably did, in spite of being there and themselves benefiting from his ministry, they did not see him as the arm of the Lord. They could not see. Here is God in action. Here is the Word made flesh. They did not see it. They did not believe it. In fact, the Apostle John quotes this very same verse in John chapter 12 and says this, although he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed 
our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? John is saying that those very signs accomplished by God's servant, Jesus, designed to excite, have in fact been disregarded. And John goes on to quote Isaiah 6, that the result of that disbelief will be a hardening of hearts, a hardening of the hearts of those men and women. Why? Because they have not obeyed the gospel and they still did not believe in him. Here is the enigma of unbelief. The enigma is this, that here is this great message of salvation. Here is this great good news. It doesn't take anything from anyone. It gives something to people. It isn't demanding that you dress in a bizarre way or that you enter into bizarre and and weird relationships and be under an oppressive regime and have evil things done to you. There is nothing that is taking away from people. It is giving them good news of pardon and peace and eternal life. And yet still people do not believe. They do not believe. And what we learn as we come to this passage in Isaiah is don't be surprised by this. The apostles were not surprised by this because God had given a word to Isaiah 700 years before Jesus came into the world and they heard him and saw him alive after his passion and they recognized that God gave them this word so that they could see themselves in the text and understand God. this was part of God's plan. God is not taken by surprise. This is the way it is going to be. Here is the reason why Jesus had to come into the world. It is this, that man has now by nature such a congenital disinterest in the things of God that if God himself were to come into the building, man would murder his maker. And that is what's going on at the cross. Now we come to verse 2 and we see something of the why of unbelief. Why did the revelation of the servant meet with such blind unbelief? Why was it so easily dismissed by the people? For about eight years, uh, Christine, my wife, uh, traveled from Richmond uh, further in towards the center of London to work in a, in a preschool in Clapham Common. And every morning, that meant every morning, uh, Monday to Friday, she had to go and get the 745 train. And in Richmond Station, there was an announcement of the arrival of the train that would go something like, very posh voice, Southwest trains are pleased to announce the arrival of the 745 train to London Waterloo, stopping at Clapham Junction. Now, after that solemn and rather exciting announcement, well, what are you expecting? Well, this is what came in. This train would come in. At the beginning, it was about 50 years old. It had windows that you had to pull up and down. Uh, you had to climb across people to get in. This poor girl, for, seven, for eight years, never once got a seat, but had to perch herself precariously in the middle of an aisle with her nose up some man's smelly underarm who was holding on to something else. It was a most horrendous thing. In other words, this grand announcement and the actuality had no relationship whatsoever. (laughs) Poor girl, she did it for eight years. 
and deserves a medal for that, for doing that. Well, you know, there's a sense of which, there's a sense of which that is the, that is the root awakening we're meant to get when we read this poem beginning in verse 13 of the previous chapter. Because he's made this announcement. He is God talking. Behold, my servant shall be successful. He shall prosper. And he will be high and lifted up and exalted. You're thinking, great. Great. Verse 2. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. On the surface... He seemed to have a purely earthly, human, humble origin. The language of plant and ground or so suggests the family tree, which seems unremarkable. You remember what they said about him. Is this not the carpenter's son? And then with a little insinuation, is this not Mary's son? And again, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And again they said, which of the, the, the priests and the, and the Pharisees, which of those people who are the real religious enthusiasts and, and promising people, which of them follow him? Are there any of them who follow him? Is there anybody who is really important and significant in society who follows him? He appeared so insignificant. The second problem is this. It says that he grew up before him, that is, before the Lord. How can this be the arm of the Lord and be distinct from the Lord? We've said that's impossible. In the third place, there was nothing distinguishable about him. Look at the text. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. The word form means appearance, majesty. All refer to the impression he made. There was nothing in his appearance, nothing in the circumstances of his appearing, that is in his birth, in his upbringing, in his life, that would make you think that's the king. What was happening in those 30 years before he went public? How come nobody in those 30 years thought, here's the king? It was because for those 30 years, he was ordinary. He was just ordinary. Nobody saw anything in him that made them think, there is the arm of the Lord. There is the Messiah. There is the God-man, God in the flesh. Nothing. There is nothing to spark interest. Here is someone without the the trappings of power, no animal magnetism, no charismatic personality, no celebrity status, no superficial, no extraordinary looks, no forceful leadership style that would make him attractive or provoke us to follow him. No form or majesty that we should look at him. Nothing our interest, nothing to get our attention. We are preoccupied today. As a church of Christ, we are preoccupied with trying to make ourselves have a better looking form that will attract the world to Jesus. And we fail miserably because every time we think we've got it, we destroy it. Our disobedience. Amen. We are followers of the Nazarene. We are followers of the one 
in whom people found nothing and people will find nothing in us when we are truest to him. He came and found the kingdom in the hands of a half Jew, half Arab who claimed similar descent and ruled by permission of the Roman authority. The circumstances of his birth were dictated by the demands of the Roman Empire. He was born nowhere near a palace in a stable with an animal feeding trough. When he came into public life, it was to the greatest preacher of that generation. John the Baptist was the star. He was the celebrity. He was the crowd puller. He was the one who was, who was making the moves and making the impressions. And only John saw that this was the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. There are heroes in the Bible whose appearance is described as being physically handsome. Joseph was one. David was another, but not Jesus. There is not one description of what Jesus anywhere in the Bible. There is not one description that indicates that he was outwardly impressive in any way, shape, or form. In fact, as a young man, people said about him, he doesn't look a day over. Well, when you're 30, you don't want people saying you don't look a day over 50. Here is someone who was misunderstood the whole way. And yet even in verse 2, I have to say this. Even with this litany of reasons why people wouldn't believe in him, there are clues to his identity embedded in the text. Keen eyes and awake minds, which is more of a problem at 9 o'clock than 11, I understand, uh, who know their messianic imagery and can remember anything before Isaiah 52, will remember in chapter 4, this of the Messiah as the branch of the Lord who would come. Or in Isaiah 6, when the work of God would seem like an abandoned stump of a tree and the word of the Lord is, the holy seed, that is, the coming Messiah, is the stump. In chapter 11, the Messiah is called the root of Jesse. So although this individual looks like nothing, stump of a tree or a root in dry ground. In fact, he's fulfilling these very promises that God had made for the servant Messiah. There you have of unbelief. It is because when people look at Jesus, apart from this revelation mentioned in verse 1, that's all they see. They don't see anything impressive. And then you see the outworking of unbelief in verse 3. Rejection comes in various forms. Sometimes it's primitive in your face. At other times it's muted. It's subtle behind your back. It can start with a barely veiled contempt. Verse 3 begins and ends by telling us that this servant will be despised. Back in chapter 49, verse 7, we were told that the servant would be, quote, one deeply despised and abhorred by the nation. What that's telling us is, Isaiah is saying to his people, Israel, the servant of the Lord, the arm of the Messiah you expect when he comes, will be deeply despised and abhorred by you. By you. 
and by extension, the other nations of the world. To be despised, to be considered unworthy of attention, worthless, to be dismissed out of hand. Whether it's considered or deliberate rejection, it's probably much more contemptuous dismissal. Now we understand, don't we, the psychological pain of being held in contempt. There's a human longing for acceptance and esteem from others. And that would be true, I think, especially of the servant because he is an open personality, a sensitive personality. All the greater the pain of rejection and dismissal. We've already noticed those gospel accounts where the people are putting in their jibes about Miss son, carpenter's son. He will be despised and he will be rejected, forsaken by his own people and his friends. You think of the rejection of Jesus by his own people. He came to his own place and his own people did not recognize him. His friends, okay, the men who'd been with him for three years, the men we call the apostles in the foundation of the church, when he was arrested, where were they? They all forsook him and fled, we're told. One of them betrayed him. The other would swear up and down, turning the air blue with his curses, that he never knew him. He was abandoned by his friends. He was a man of sorrows, the text says, and acquainted with grief. Experienced sorrow. It came wave after wave over his personality, over his being. He was acquainted with grief because he hung out with the, not with so much the movers and the shakers and the great and the influential, but with the needy and the distressed. He had a sympathetic heart, the heart of a physician. You know what it's like. Losers and sufferers make the rest of us feel uncomfortable. If a loser or somebody who's really ill is coming towards you, what do you do? You duck into the next doorway to avoid them. And you just hope that when you've ducked in, it's, you've not walked into a lady's salon or somewhere that you shouldn't be. But that's what we do. That's what they did with him. See what the text says here. We regarded him as one from whom men hide their faces. We wanted to avoid him. People still want to avoid Jesus Christ. Because he was a loser. That's the message of Islam about Jesus. Great prophet, but a loser. That's the message of the new atheists. Jesus was a loser. He had this great campaign, didn't work out, and he died. A loser. And so the prophet summarizes, he was despised and we esteemed him not. People are prepared to say nice things about Jesus from time to time. They will pick out the things that are not objectionable to them in his teaching. They quite like the turn the other cheek thing. Uh, and they quite like the love your enemy thing. They will use that language and will feel quite pious in doing so. Out of its context, of course. They may admire his ethical code. They may be happy to hail him man, an exemplary teacher, a great prophet, a social revolutionary, perhaps. But once you bring before them his claims to deity, before Abraham was, I am, he who has seen me has seen the Father. 
when we hear his claim to be the creator of the world, that him all things were made, people are not so happy. When we hear Jesus claim that he came into the world to be a savior, that is to deal with the sin problem, well, talk of sin is not going to make us happy, so talk of him as savior isn't going to make us any happier. And when we find that he had to die, why did he die? It's because our sin merits the wrath of God, and he has to put himself between the wrath of God and our sin. Well, we don't really want to hear about the wrath of God. If we don't talk about it, it won't happen. And when we hear Jesus say to the people, I and I alone am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That crosses out absolutely every other religion in the world except Christianity. We don't want that. That's the reality, isn't it? He was despised and we esteemed him not. And as soon as we come to grips with who Jesus is, as soon as we come to grips with the reality of who, is, who Jesus is, we will find the same experience the apostles found that is reported here in these first three verses. We will find that we will not be believed. People message, they will not believe the report. They won't listen to the good news. They won't accept the good news until God reveals himself to them, until there is a miracle of new birth in their hearts. Then they will believe, which is why we need to be praying for Jewish people and people of every race, they would have their eyes open to see, their hearts open to receive, their wills opened and moved to obey. That they would be given the gift of faith to believe in Jesus Christ as the only Savior of sinners. I mean, that's the business of the church, isn't it? That's the business of the gospel. It's our core business. And the effect that we will have in the world, this is the effect we have in the world. It is this, that the world does not believe. That's why this is in the Bible. So that the New Testament Christians don't feel, well, Jesus came, died, rose, and went to heaven. And we say, why do people not believe? Because God said they wouldn't believe. That's why. He said they wouldn't believe. That was the experience of the early believers. You go to the catacombs in Rome, you find in one of the catacombs a small drawing. It's of a man kneeling before a cross, and on the cross there is a human figure with a head like a donkey's head. And underneath there's the cartoon, there's a caption that reads like this, Alexamenos worships his God. Ha ha! Doesn't say ha ha, I put that in. But that's the point. The point is, isn't that ridiculous? A crucified God in Roman culture. When a Roman citizen couldn't be crucified, it was against the law. When we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is still the effect we're going to have in the world. Well, you say you can couch it in nicer terms. Of course, you can couch it in nicer terms so it doesn't say anything. That's what the positive thinking movement does. That's what, that's what many of the prosperity preachers do. They take so much out of the gospel that is left of the gospel. And my problem with that is what they're going to do when they stand before God in the final day. My problem is what I'm going to say when I stand before God in the final day. And I'm asked the question, did you tell them it as it is? Or did you tell them what they want to hear? 
He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Paul writes that he echoes the words here, that those words are his words. This is his experience. There was a time when Paul didn't esteem Jesus Christ. He saw him as a phony, a blasphemer. He saw Christians as those who must be hounded to their death. We esteemed him not. And many people today here still feel the same thing. You esteem him not. And to enjoy the benefits of his work requires positively trusting in him, accepting him, receiving him, resting on his work. And to do that, you need the help of the Holy Spirit. And if you ask for the help of the Holy Spirit today, Lord, will you reveal Christ to me so that I may believe what I've heard? I want to give you this guarantee. If you ask for that, God will give you that. He will give you that. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would frustrate the God of this age who has blinded the minds of those who don't believe so that they cannot see any of the glory that there is in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would please open people's eyes to see, ears to hear, that they might embrace him and believe in him for his sake. Amen.